Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at CriminalAFPod, or click on the link in the episode description. Cease to exist, just come and say you love me. Give up your world, come on, you can't be. I'm your kind, oh, your kind, I can see. Walk on, walk on, I love you, pretty girl. My life is yours, and you can have my world. Never had a lesson I ever learned. But I know we all get our turn. I love you. Never learn not to love you. What's good, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I'm Dave Jari. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Corder. How we doing? So I've included a snippet from Manson's song, Cease to Exist, in the intro. Uh, full credits and where to find the full song are in the episode description. But I have to say, what a waste of talent. I, for sure. He, he, he deserved that record deal. Oh, absolutely. 100%. But, you know, he's like, if you were if, if you were like one of the producers that were like listening to him, what would you? I, yeah, I mean, his aura is definitely off a little bit. <laughs> definitely off. Definitely uh, off. But, you know, like, Manson, he was grunge music decades before grunge became a thing. Yeah, for sure. It was more folky rock and roll than at that time. Everything, Beatles and all this stuff. He had that that West Virginia roots and, and Ohio roots where he's from yep. in his uh, his rock and roll. Yeah, because I was listening to some of his music and like I could definitely hear or kind of see a, like a transition from his music to like a, you know, a Nirvana unplugged or something, you know, something along those lines, you know. It sounds very culty. Yeah. Culty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we do have a criminal shout-out to give, and it goes to Laura Shin. Uh, you're amazing, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. You can become a criminal as well by joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash criminalaf. Or if you want to hit it and quit it, you can become a barista at buymeacoffee.com and buy us one or more coffees to help support the podcast. Link to both our Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee are in the episode description. So I like to start a little segment that, you know, we'll call uh, Mail Call, you know, since we're criminal AF. And I figured, you know, I'd name it after 
the most important time of the day in the penal system. Oh, hell yeah. Mail call. Mail call. So what we'll do is we'll post a Ask Me Anything on Instagram, and we'll answer some of the questions in each episode. Now, I do have a few questions that piled in already, and you know we'll take a minute to answer them. First one is Moy Alana, and she asks, how did you two meet? We met. Uh, so uh, On the corner of... Yeah, I was I was a uh, you know young, expiring, homeless, and I was a rich, powerful entrepreneur. <laughs> pretty much like it was pretty much like pretty women just reverse with men with penises. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a place to sleep, you know. Dave was <laughs> so I rented Garrett for the weekend, yeah. and here we are. I, hey, listen, don't I had to do what I had to do to survive? All right, no, uh, me and Dave started working at the same location, same job, and yep. we met in our academy class, and we were always I always liked him. And we, we we split up eventually. You went you went to day shift. I went yeah, to nights, and then yeah. now he slowly worked his way back to the. Yeah, the I would night have been shift. on nights nights if it wasn't for my wife at the time. She was like, "Yeah, I went home during the day." So then a year later, uh, never mind. <laughs> but yeah, here I am on nights. Me and Garrett, we're in the same shift. We see each other every pretty much every night. That's how we started doing this. Because for those that don't know, who only follow the Criminal AF name podcast, yeah. I had a podcast prior to this called The Serial Holic, which I did strictly narrative stories and, and whatnot, if you haven't heard it. Uh, you can hear those stories at uh, Criminal Life Direct if you want to go. Yes. Uh, but go check I, them out. I wanted to like kind of do an update to the show, have a little more discussion, and I'm thinking, you know what? Like Garrett can carry on an interesting conversation with a tree, basically. <laughs> he has the gift for gab, which is good. It kind of takes me out of my shell. And it gets me like, in trouble a lot, though, too. <laughs> It does. Uh, I rub people off the, the wrong way sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, hey, Gary, you know, how about we do this? And yeah, and here we are now. History. Yep. And uh, also, uh, Davit wants to know, uh, he said, in the last episode, you mentioned talking to, uh, to each other at work. Uh, what do you do? And the easiest answer is counterterrorism. <laughs> Stop. Stop. Isn't that hilarious that uh, people at our job put in their like Facebook bios, counter-terrorist officer? Yeah. Like, oh, Mike, stop, dude. Stop. No, we, uh, our we, official title is nuclear protection officer. Yeah, nuclear protection services. Yeah. That's what we work for. And, uh, yeah, that's really, we can't really talk about yeah. anything else either. Yeah. But let's just say we keep a large area of the population safe. Correct. So. Correct. So uh, also uh, S. Fleming 5 and Kelt Girl Beth, you know, they both kind of asked, how did you get into true crime? Now, for me, true crime kind of happened to me in a roundabout way with Michael Ross and, you know, how he affected a friend of the family. And just over the years, you know, kind of diving into why do people do what they do, you know, like the psychology behind it, uh, how uh, a child of, out of five can become a serial killer, but the other four don't. You know, like, what happened in their life? Were they born that way? Did they have a significant life-altering event in their childhood? And the vast majority of the time, it always happens during the pubescent stage. Yes. You know, which kind of molds their mind a separate way. I definitely think you would have thrived, in, like, as a psych major. You think so? Yeah, if, if you went to, you know, a, a school. I'm psyching you right now. Yeah. All right, Garrett. You want to talk about that? Uh, For- no. <laughs> For me, it was. It, I've always been interested. I mean, every, anytime there's a new true crime documentary or a, anything, I love it. I love it. Same thing with me too. Is the the psychological aspect of it just intrigues the hell out of me? Yeah. 
And finally, uh, Connecticut Murder History, she asked, what CT crimes live rent-free in your head? That's easy. It's easy. I mean, you probably know this from me. is the, the Cheshire Murders. And uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's fantastic. Go back and listen to it. Um, yeah, there's just, like I said, we've talked about this on the podcast, too, is is we, we've told stories of some pretty dark, horrible crimes. But that particular murder really, like, stays rent-free in my mind. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's the... Uh the alleged randomness of it, you know, how he just spotted them at the stop and shop and was like, oh, let me follow them home. Yeah, it, it, I think it's a combination of everything of the being from, like from a, like where we are, where we live, how close it was, how, you know, how they're still sitting scot free because of laws yeah. on death row. Well, not death row anymore, but it's just, yeah, they get know. the breeze it, still. Having a daughter too, I mean, I, I know we hear stories about that. It's, it's just really eerie. Now, I'd have to say that mine is, uh, it's actually an unsolved murder, and that's of Kyle Seidel, of, uh, he was a Waterford, Connecticut man. I remember that story. Yeah, he was uh, gunned down on his way to pick up dinner for his family. He left his house on December 21st, 2012, at around 7.50 p.m., and was found shot in the neck in the parking lot of a bowling alley at 8.16 p.m. It was about a, about a half a mile from the restaurant he was heading to. Uh, when he was found, uh, his car was still running, headlights still on, the driver's side door was wide open, and it raises up like a few questions. You know, like, did he meet someone there? Uh, did he pick someone up and it turned bad? Uh, was it a case of road rage and he pulled off into the parking lot to confront another driver? You know, because according to his family and friends, the bowling alley was not a place Kyle would have voluntarily gone to. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't his thing. Some people say drugs, but he wasn't a druggie. No. So, like, it, it's just no, a weird a situation. And that's, like, our backyard, too. That's, like, the next town over. And uh, it's a it's a beautiful area, but there's a lot of surrounding towns that are kind of sketchy. So, and, and you get the you get the backflow from the bad parts of town to come in to use all their facilities, like Walmart and Stop and Shop and all that stuff. Right, so, you, you, the... you never know what kind of person was. Even though it's a beautiful town, you never know who's walking down the side of the road, too. Right. So, yeah, but I remember that, that case, like, lit this place on fire fire everybody everybody was talking about that and you know it's been 10 years and still nobody has an answer to this and and like you said you know our community isn't very big you know on this side of the state so somebody has to know whether somebody was at the bowling alley somebody driving by even a a family or friend of the person who who pulled the trigger that's not something that uh an average person can keep in yeah normally that's like you got you gotta tell somebody yeah you know so I don't know. Like I said, it's been 10 years and nobody's come forward. So, I mean. That's a good one. Yeah. And I like what you said about, uh, you know, the families, you know, or the people from the sketchier areas. Yeah. We do have our, we do have our uh, versions of the Florida man, you know, nearby. Oh, for sure. (laughs) For sure. There's, there's definitely, it's it's funny because everyone thinks that if, oh, you're from Connecticut, you know what I mean? It's this, you, you think from movies and, and. And it's this picturesque, yeah. It's, rich. it's it's this you know beautiful boats and and little like these weird like Cape Cod beach houses and stuff like that. Oh, you're from Connecticut. It's gorgeous out there. No, there is one section of CT that is actually very nice. Yeah, and it's basically New and York. And it's I don't even call it <laughs> Connecticut. It's 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 all the rich people that that work in New York City that don't want to live in the city. They they move right on the outskirts of New York, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's it. Everywhere else is yeah. like. Just it's, regular regular baby. It's probably like six or seven towns yep. in one county, right on the edge of New York. Fairfield County. And the rest of the state is pretty much shit. Yeah. So I'd agree. I mean, it has its so, yeah, that's the thing. It's it's there's never like usually one nice area. 
It's like the you know you go across the railroad basically. Right. It's like <laughs> there's other side of the tracks. Yep, there's other side of the tracks in every place you can every find. Every single town. Yeah, I I can name both of our towns. Where I where we yeah. are right now. Where we are you, right you go now. like five five roads down and you're in the hood. You can I get meth for five dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I don't even think meth. It's more crack out here. <laughs> Dope and crack. <laughs> So thank you everybody for sending in your questions, and once again, you know we'll we'll put out ask me everything every week, and uh, we'll pick some questions to answer on uh, in the next episode. Now, for those of you joining us for the first time, this is a true crime podcast, and there will be talk of murder, rape, torture, assault, and pretty much any crime that would haunt you nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be vulgar language, like fuck. I fucking love how you say that. <laughs> uh, anyways, we understand that Criminal AF is not for everyone. But we just ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, hey, thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome, welcome to, to the, the debauchery. debauchery. Okay. We are going to start off this episode the right way. The only way. The only way. The only way that a number one true crime podcast <laughs> in the world does. <laughs> with the Florida Man of the Day. Naked Florida Man arrested for... <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, nothing, I'm sorry. What? Uh, just, let, uh, all right, just let everybody know, like, when Garrett does these stories... 99.9% of the time, I have no idea what he's about to say. So I'm hearing these the same way that you guys are hearing them for the first time. Oh, so, so when you, you came, heard Naked Florida yeah, Man? Naked Florida Man. <laughs> what you, I was just great. like, oh my God, this is going to be good. All right, I'm sorry, go ahead. All right, ready? Yep. Naked Florida Man Focus. arrested. Okay. Naked Florida Man arrested after attempting to enter a daycare center playing with himself. <laughs> what? Creeper! Oh my god. A naked and apparently sleepy Florida man was arrested. <laughs> sleepy Florida man. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> a naked and apparently sleepy Florida man was arrested after exposing himself outside a daycare center in Florida. The Jesus. scene took place in Port Charlotte, and when Charlotte County deputies arrived, they were alerted by staff that they noticed the male near the outdoor shower area on the right side of the building. Well, I mean, at least he was in the shower area. Yeah, I mean, I mean he, he might have been doing something right there. Yeah. According to investigators, deputies made their way to a camper, uh, camper trailer that was being stored in the parking lot of the daycare. <laughs> of course. <laughs> he just set up his house right outside the daycare. He's like, shooter's full. As they, <laughs> as they approached, they alerted the man of their presence and requested that he exit the camper. The man identified as Derek Lee Nelson, 44, was completely naked and craw- crawled out of the camper onto the ground and into custody. <laughs> Methamphetamine is a hell of a fucking oh drug, dude. Oh my god, he, that guy had oh. no clue where he was. Like he couldn't even like walk out of the trailer. He was just like slithering. Yeah, out yeah, of the yeah, trailer. I yeah. I can see it now. Just literally like <laughs> like belly sliding yeah. on his. <laughs> oh my god. Um, Nelson's, Nelson's clothing was located in, inside the trailer along with a small amount of THC near his items. Yeah, it was def- least, yeah. least with what? Yeah, it was definitely more than THC in that guy's system. While deputies spoke with Nelson, they, he exhibited signs of being under the influence of narcotics. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Throughout the investigation, daycare staff shared that they witnessed the male subject walk to the front door of the daycare while masturbating. Whoa. What? Yes. 
Like walking and masturbating. That's actually impressive. Like I said, meth is a hell of a drug, dude. Staff also stated he jiggled on the locked door handles attempting to get inside the building. Ooh, that's creepy. Imagine that jiggling the door handle. The, Fucking, the jiggler. The dude's, <laughs> dude's lagging off. He's like, let me in. <laughs> I, I bet you he didn't even know what that building was. I, yeah. I have a real oh, yeah. strong. He had no idea that that was, was a daycare. He was just out. out of it. Now, did the kid? Did the kids see this? Or was I, it just well, the, let's let's see. Staff okay. uh, Nelson was arrested and transported to Charlotte County Jail, charged with exposure of sexual organs, possession of controlled substance with, without prescription, drug paraphernalia, burglary of an unoccupied conve- convenience, unarmed, criminal mischief, more than a hundred thousand dollars damage, or uh, more than a thousand dollars damage. So no. Uh, well, thank God for that, Jesus. So yeah, because he would have gotten uh, risk of injury, a minor or something like yeah, that. Some, yeah, some some minor charge. Uh, <laughs> this this is the best way it ends. This type of behavior is absurd, and especially around children. This is a clear sign that this individual is in need of intervention. Yeah, no fucking duh. Jesus, if you or someone you love is struggling, reach out. <laughs> we can't force you, but we can guide you. Said the sheriff, <laughs> the Charlotte County Sheriff's. Oh my god. What in the actual fuck? It's, that's wild. That's a wild story. Uh, as the daycare worker seeing yeah. that. What? How? I want to know the timeline here. I'm, I'm curious. How long did they just let him post like, up his camper? Well, he had the camper parked there. He Obviously, he said he showered, correct? In the outdoor shower in at a outdoor, daycare? Yeah, I, uh, I don't, don't fucking ask me. Port Charlotte. So I, I'm willing to guess. It, it's Port Town because of the name, but it sounds like middle of Florida type of deal. Ring a ding 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 ding. Yeesh. Imagine being a parent, like, kid comes home. Oh, I'm flying that. I'm I'm in there He's raising like, Mommy, hell. There was a man with his pee pee in his hand. He was playing with his pee pee. Like, you tell, when are you tell me to go in my room? He's <laughs> <laughs> touching his bathing suit. Wait, no, no, area. no, no, no. no. <laughs> I meant to. <laughs> oh my god, Garrett. Oh. That is hilarious. All right, so let's move it from Florida, please. Get away from this guy diddling himself. And let's take a trip back in time to the year 1969 when the first man walked on the moon from a television studio in some back lot in Hollywood. <laughs> Listen, we're not conspiracy theories here, but <laughs> no, just kidding. how did he get the phone line to the moon before we even had satellites, guys? Come on. How was there a fucking beautiful picture on yeah. a TV? Yeah. <laughs> I got you loud and clear here on the bat phone. Uh, <laughs> Neil. Houston. Neil, can you hear me, Neil? I'm talking to you on the moon, <laughs> on a landline with a cord. Can you see me waving? <laughs> I, I, there's, a cord, there's a cord on my phone. <laughs> Oh, man. All right, so let's hop into the studio chloroform time machine. Punch in the coordinates for California, 1969. Oh, that sounds beautiful. I would love to go to... Fucking amazing time. California, 1969. Let's go. And away we go. Hold on, let me grab my weed. (laughs) Wow, feeling kind of of fuzzy. You know the establishment, man. They want to bring you down, man. Totally, man. We only have one Earth, man. California's far out, man. (laughs) Fucking groovy, dude. (laughs) All right. So as we mentioned, the Apollo 11 mission captivated the world as an estimated 1 billion people. 1 billion people in 1969. That's impressive. 1 billion. Uh, Watch Neil Armstrong take the first steps on the moon. 
The Woodstock Festival drew 500,000 people to a small town in New York State where they watched 35 performers, did lots of drugs, and fucked each other's brains out <laughs> for three glorious STD-filled days. God, you could you could probably smell uh, the rolling hills yeah, of New I think, York. I wonder if you go there right now, you could probably still smell yeah, it. Yeah, like yeah, dig, you know, They do like an archaeological <laughs> fucking dig. <laughs> the dirt, like two layers down? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and this is like the Woodstock line in the freaking... Ugh. Uh, the, the, I will say though it was probably a blast Oh, it, it looked like a lot of fun like nobody gave two fucks the entire time uh, the Beatles recorded Abbey Road their last album together which featured the iconic photo of John, Paul, George and Ringo walking the zebra crossing near the entrance to the famous Abbey Road recording studio the Montreal Expos who are now the Washington Senators correct uh, they came into existence as the first Major League Baseball team outside of the United States. So a little random fact about the Expos is that the field that they played on was called Jari Park. Oh, a little shout-out to... Uh, a little shout-out to Canadian The host roots. of the number one world's best <laughs> podcast, True Kind Podcast. Uh, I like that. I like that. You know? Uh, uh, so 250,000 protesters marched on Washington, D.C. to protest the Vietnam War. Among the notable speakers was Forrest Gump. Yo, dude, you're on a roll today. What? <laughs> you're on a roll today. There's only one thing I can say about the war in Vietnam, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> you know, we were we were robbed. We were robbed. It was actually b- brilliant directing by whoever wrote the story yeah. that you didn't get to hear what he had to say. Oh yeah, because like to this day, I just want to hear what Forrest said. <laughs> There's very few things that I need to finish my life happy, and I want to hear what Forrest I had to know, say. Yeah, yeah. What did what he say? Because it was probably inspiring, and that dumb fucking hippie or that dumb colonel yeah. messed it all Pulled up. The plug. Uh, Stanley versus Georgia was the groundbreaking case where the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to prohibit the possession of obscene materials for personal use, leading to celebrations by 14-year-old boys across the country. <laughs> Keep it going. Yeah, right. you're, you're on a roll. All right. The U.S. Air Force officially closed its Project Blue Book declaring there was no evidence of extraterrestrials visiting us from outer space. Bullshit. I know. Like, how does that explain Yoko Ono? (laughs) You do it. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, I'm done. All right. I'm serious. Uh, PBS debuts in 1969 with its long-lasting hit show, Sesame Street. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to Sesame Street? How to get to Sesame Street? <laughs> and the, also the groundbreaking TV program, Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> it aired for the first time. Yeah. Got a fan? Uh, Monty Python? You know, you know, family I, like the dry British. No, 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 no. I. Uh, wow! Did you hear that, Brits? <laughs> Whatever. It's where's Ian at? Where's Ian at over there? I'm, Brits? A, I'm a strong believer that if if something becomes a cult classic, you, you're like almost conditioned to like it. Like you, you have to like Monty Python. Uh, I'm kind of saying same way with Die Hard. Uh, I fucking think Die Hard sucks. All right, we'll we'll come back on that one because <laughs> Die Hard does not suck. But it's awful. But anyway, but. Monty Python. I mean, the humor is not that great. It's for the time. I don't know. I just don't Did think you ever it's see as funny. Benny Hill? I've never laughed at like Monty Python. It's more. It's funnier when people like do it outside in, in public or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. 
But whenever someone does a stupid, hey, the Knights of St. Nee, I'm like, okay, dude, like, come, it's not that fucking funny. Like, and like, <laughs> they're trying to be witty and quirky. I'm just like, have you ever uh, seen Benny Hill? No, what's, oh, no, I never saw Benny Hill. Benny Hill was something else. It's, it's kind of like a Mr. Bean, but with half naked women. And the dude was probably like 80 years old. I don't know. <laughs> But it he, sounded like it would be fun back in the day. It was fun. Especially when you're a kid. Yeah. My, my parents, they were like, you can't watch Benny Hill. And I'm like, okay. And then everybody would go to bed and I sneak downstairs and turn up Benny Hill. <laughs> but yeah, that was good too. Uh, let's see. Pop- <laughs> popular films from 1969 include The Love Bug, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Midnight Cowboy, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and True Grit. It's it's funny that the '60s had so many western like western yeah. westerns. I, I don't Which get were filmed at Spawn Ranch. Yeah, exactly, Whoa, tie exactly. Back. Tie back in. It was such a popular genre. Genre back then. Yeah. Is it genre or genre? Genre. 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 I don't know. Mm. All right. An average. The average annual income for 1969 was eight thousand five hundred fifty dollars. The cost of a new home was fifteen thousand five hundred. A gallon of gas was 35 cents to fill up your brand new 1969 Toyota Corona. Ooh, the Corona. The Corona. Ooh. My Corona. Uh, which was yours for $1,900 fresh off the lot. Damn. Yeah. Um, imagine all those people Styling. that got lucky in California and, and just, you know, that were semi-wealthy and yep. bought those crazy Malibu fucking Malibu beach homes for uh, like, yeah. I don't know, back then 200000 which was a crazy amount of money back right, then. Right. But just now with like, inflation, you're, you're yeah. 30 million, 40 million dollar fucking beach houses yeah. and shit. They I made know. out, dude. There's a lot of people like that who like inherit these houses from like yeah. their grandparents. Yeah. I and mean, it, need, it needs updating, but. I paid a nickel and a yeah. paperclip for it back in 1954. <laughs> It's, it's it's crazy, and then they wonder why nobody wants to buy homes. I no, the, the, our my generation isn't buying homes and yeah. falling in line with the American dream. <laughs> People can't afford it. And in 1969 was also the infamous Tate and LaBianca murders, which we'll talk about today. Which a lot of people say ended the hippie movement, the the, the love movement, all that stuff. Those murders, At, right after these murders, man, you could watch gov- the government got involved. Yeah. Blacklisted LSD to like a class three drug. Fucking everything was anti LSD, acid, weed, all drug movements. Fucking hippies became well, that's, crazy. That's because the CIA was pissed. Well, yeah. What do you expect? You let some. Yeah. You let Charlie Manson out. Really? And then they almost, you know, people started realizing that their yeah. their asset almost got got lost. Ah, <laughs> oh, we're not gonna go there though. That's another conspiracy. Yeah. He's like he's taking our programming. Fuck. He's better than we are in my control. <laughs> Damn it. Why do we teach him this? <laughs> uh, in the last episode, we introduced some of the inner circle of the family and began talking about some of the events that led up to the prosecution's theory, prosecution's theory, of Helter Skelter. Now, once again, I will say that the version that we are telling right now is largely based off of this theory. There are others that are kind of like less sexy, you know, whatever, but... I think those seem more plausible, to be honest. I agree with you. Uh, which we'll cover in the next episode when we, when we discuss alternate theories. Uh, we left off part one at Spawn Ranch, where Charles Manson instructed Tex Watson and the girls to leave a sign, something witchy. So here's part two of our Manson series titled Helter Skelter.
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode of Criminal as Fuck contains descriptions of disturbing graphic violence, which may be offensive to some people. Listener discretion is advised. On the hot and humid day of August 8th, 1969, the home of actress Sharon Tate was bustling. Sharon, who was eight months pregnant at the time, was planning a baby shower the following day and wanted everything to be perfect. The housekeeper arrived at 8 a.m. At noon, the gardeners arrived to mow the lawn and trim the hedges. Sharon received a phone call during this time from her husband and soon-to-be father of her child, Roman Polanski, a famed movie director who happened to be overseas filming. Roman recalls the conversation as light. Sharon had asked if he wanted a birthday party when he returned on the 12th, and she spoke of a stray kitten outside the house that she was trying to feed with an eyedropper. Sharon's new puppy was scampering about the house, leaving paw prints throughout, to the dismay of the housekeeper. Sharon's friends and house guests, Abigail Folger, heiress to the Folger coffee fortune, and Abigail's boyfriend and Roman's friend, Wojtek Frykowski, a Polish actor also known as being a Hollywood playboy, would visit with her and have lunch together. They were joined by two more of Sharon's friends. At 3.30, the guests departed and Sharon's friend, Jay Sebring, a hairstylist to the stars and former lover of Sharon's, called. The two had dated for the two years prior to Sharon meeting Roman, but they remained close. She spoke with Jay for a short time and then went and laid down to rest. She awoke at 6 p.m. by another call from Sebring, who said he would be coming over. He arrived by 6.30 p.m. By 7 p.m., Abigail and Wojtek had arrived back at the home. Sharon's sister, Deborah, had called to see if she could come visit, but Sharon and her friends had made plans to eat at her favorite restaurant, El Coyote, a Mexican food cafe known best for its iconic red neon sign on Beverly Boulevard in Los Angeles. The four of them departed by 7.30 p.m. Around 10.30 p.m., Sharon and her friends left the restaurant to return home to 10050 Cielo Drive, a rental property for the Hollywood elite, formerly rented by record producer Terry Melcher and his girlfriend, actress Candace Bergman. Abigail spoke with her mother on the phone prior to retiring to her bedroom. Abigail changed into a long white nightgown and laid in her bed to read. Wojtek remained in the living room, falling asleep on the couch. Sharon and Jay retreated to her master bedroom. Because of the heat and humidity, Sharon slipped into a bikini bathing suit draped in a negligee. Just outside the home, on the far side of the swimming pool, was a guest house. The occupant of the guest house, 19-year-old William Garrison, was hired by the owner of the property, Rudy Altabelli, as a caretaker who would care for his dogs and small upkeeper on the property until Rudy returned from Europe later that summer. On the night of August 8th, William was laying low, 
He had partied pretty hard the previous two nights and was sleeping off his hangover. Around 8.30 p.m., he hitchhiked to Sunset Strip, where he purchased some food, a soda, and a pack of cigarettes. He walked most of the way home, but decided to hitchhike the rest of the way back. Once at the guest house, at around 10 p.m., William turned on the television and ate his food. At 11.45, an acquaintance knocked on the door. 18-year-old Stephen Parent, a recent high school graduate who had met William the month before when he picked him up hitchhiking, had just gotten off work at a radio store on Wilshire Boulevard and needed some extra cash. He brought along a clock radio in hopes that he could sell it to William. Stephen plugged it in and set it to 12 o'clock to show William how the alarm clock worked. William declined, but Stephen stuck around for a while, and the two watched television and had a beer. Stephen, still looking to sell the clock radio, used William's telephone to call another friend who went to school at UCLA. Stephen unplugged the clock radio, which now read 1219, and said goodbye as he began walking past the swimming pool to his car. William closed the door to the guest house, and within minutes, heard the dogs barking as someone in the neighborhood appeared to set off fireworks. So we'll start off this segment with Sharon Tate. Uh, Sharon was born January 24th, 1943 in Dallas, Texas. She was the first of three daughters. Uh, because she was in a military family, they moved often, and in, it was in Verona, Italy in 1961 where Sharon met actor Richard Baymar, and they began dating. It was Richard who encouraged Sharon to go into acting. Uh, Sharon met Richard's agent, and soon she was acting in commercials and modeling. Uh, she was beautiful. She was beautiful. She was absolutely beautiful. Very beautiful. Like, very beautiful. Very. You have a little crush on Sharon Tate? <laughs> uh, Sharon had appeared in shows like The Beverly Hillbillies, Mr. Ed, and Petticoat Junction before she jumped in front of the uh, big screen. Sharon soon met celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, and they immediately fell in love. She appeared in the movie Eyes of the Devil, which opened the door for her to work with a young Polish director named Roman Polanski in the film The Fearless Vampire. At first, Sharon couldn't stand Roman as he was a hard director. You know, he's always looking for uh, perfection. They all are. Yeah. They all are. Uh, but she grew to respect him and ultimately began to love him. Now, Sharon broke off her relationship with Sebring and began dating Polanski, though the three would remain friends. A little opportunist, right? You think? I mean, that's a good career move, right? That you go yeah. from the celebrity hairdresser to the director, yeah. like a huge director at that time. Yeah. Uh, Polanski and Sharon Tate—they were voted Groovy Couple of the Year. God, I want that award. Yeah, imagine having that trophy. In me, me, and Kelly get Groovy's Couple of the World. They should bring that back. Bring it back. <laughs> bring it back. Well, you would have my vote for the Groovy Couple. You. I appreciate you. They were married in January of 1968. Now, sticking with her roots and her upbringing, Sharon wanted to start a family, but Roman didn't want to have any children because of his upbringing in uh, World War II Poland. That you makes know. sense. Yeah. Uh, this, along with Roman's womanizing, would lead to some problems in their marriage. Oh, Roman's a dog. Yeah. So, Roman was a dog. So to keep Sharon happy, he decided to uh, give her what she wanted, and she became pregnant. Sharon spent some time traveling with Roman and began filming another movie after she became pregnant, and she re returned home to Cielo Drive in July of 1969, 
and Roman was about to join her after he was done filming in London. Uh, he was due back on August 12th, so just a handful of days later. So here's an eerie tidbit that I found. Uh, in 1965, uh, it stated that Sharon, while Sharon was with Jay Sebring, uh, Sharon had a dream that a man was sitting at the edge of her bed. She immediately jumped out of bed and ran to the top of the stairs, and when she looked down below, there was a person with a rope around their neck laying in a pool of blood. Like Foreshadowing? Much? Like, like you know, we, like, we, we always have these, like, recurring, like, weird dreams and stuff, and it's like, you know, do you believe in that shit? Like, foreshadowing, like, dreaming of, like... I, I think that event that and every happen. listener and us included have a reoccurring nightmare yeah. that like you'll remember for the rest of your life. And it ha- like I, I get one every like once a year. It seems like yeah. you know the same one. My my recurring dream is uh, I am in the Civil War. No, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I'm running from the troops. Oh my god, I got a visual dude and a half right now. Yeah, like I'm running and I'm trying to hide. Like the troops are marching and I'm like just like running through the woods trying to get away from them. That's interesting. And then it just stops. Dude, that's re- reincarnation of a... I know. Or, or, you died in those woods. Well, I, but I don't know who I am. You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm like a that's, soldier that's or creepy. if I'm like obviously these people, whoever they're coming, I, I don't know if it's, it's you know, it, familiar with the American Civil War, you, know, you had blue and gray and whatever. Um... Like, I, I can't tell who they are. I just know that they're, like, like yeah. marching down. In the, the line. In line, marching. And, in, like, I am scared shitless trying to get as far away from them as possible. So, I don't know. That's my recurring dream. Like, I have it, like, a couple times a year. So, yeah, maybe you Fucking were. Weird. You died in the Civil War. Well, there you go. My dearest Abigail. <laughs> so, speaking of Jay Sebring, uh, he was born Thomas Cummer. On October 10th. Keep 19, it together. Just keep going. Uh, October 10th, 1933. What a name. To Bernard and Margaret Cummer <laughs> in Alabama. Jay would serve in the Navy during the Korean oh, War. No, he, it just keeps going. Where he picked up the knack for cutting hair. Oh, come on, dude. This is too easy. <laughs> After his... My dad was in the Navy. Was he a hairdresser, too? <laughs> no, he wasn't. Okay. Uh, after his tour of duty, he changed his name to Jay Sebring and moved to Los Angeles, where he innovated men's hairstyles. Oh. Yeah, so rather than the usual high and tight buzz cuts that were popular, you know, during the 50s and whatnot, uh, Jay would cut and style their hair, and soon, actors such as Warren Beatty, Paul Newman, Kirk Douglas, and Steve McQueen were listed as his clients. And Kirk Douglas actually brought him in as his official hairstylist for the movie Spartacus. Uh, Jay was believed to be heavily involved in the L.A. drug scene, along with Wojtek Frykowski, who was the childhood friend of Roman Polanski. Wojtek was born in Poland on December 22, 1936. He received his degree in chemistry, but rather than pursue a career in that field, he wanted to uh, follow in his, his friend's footsteps and become a filmmaker. He wrote several books, which never got published. And he left Poland in 1967, and after spending time in Paris, he moved to the United States. Um, it was in New York, a Polish author friend introduced him to coffee heiress Abigail Folger, who was born on August 11th, 1943. Now, Wojtek, he couldn't speak English very well, so but he and Folger were fluent in French. So this is how they mainly communicated with each other. For months, the two lived together in New York, but then decided to move out west. By August of 1969, neither Wojtek nor Abigail seemed happy with one another. 
They fought constantly as Wojtek didn't have a job and was basically living off Abigail's fortune. The coffee fortune. Yeah, the coffee fortune. Uh, Both had started using drugs uh, excessively and would hold drug and orgy parties at Cielo Drive prior to Sharon's return from London in July. Uh, Sharon, she wasn't big into all of that. She also was pregnant at the time. She was like, all right, come on, guys, cut this out. God, the 60s was wild. Yeah, that was. What? Now, according to uh, Folger's psychiatrist, she was building up the nerve to leave Wojtek at the time of the murders. Uh, Now, for Abigail, she grew up in San Francisco. Uh, She displayed an interest in art, passing much of her free time painting. She was also musically inclined, as she was noted as a talented pianist. She attended the Catalina School for Girls in Carmel, Florida, or Carmel, Florida. I wonder if she attended the Catalina Wine Mixer. It's the Catalina Wine Mixer, Dave. (laughs) Uh, She went on to Radcliffe College, where she graduated with honors, finally ending up in Harvard, where she did graduate work and received a degree in art history. And it was in 1967 when she moved to New York City. She got a job working for a magazine publisher, and it was at a bookstore party where she was introduced to Wojtek Frykowski. Now... There is the little disgust victim of this night, and that's Stephen Parent. Uh, he was born in California on February 12, 1951, in the Los Angeles suburb of El Monte. His main interests were playing guitar and electronics, uh, which led to trouble with the law. Uh, Parent was arrested several times for petty theft and spent some time in the youth correctional facility, where he tested at near genius level for electronics. Now, most of the time was spent working and saving money for school. He had two jobs. Uh, by day, he worked full-time as a delivery boy. And at night, he uh, worked as a salesman at Jonas Miller Stereo. It was here that Stephen took the clock radio to try and sell to William Garretson. Dude, if I ever die or get brutally murdered, I just don't let it be with a famous person. No one remembers Stephen. No one talks about Stephen. This is like, like, you know what I mean? Even Abigail is as like the rich heiress of the Folger company. No one talks. Uh, yeah. You just get you get overshadowed. You get lost in history. Yeah, you get lost in history. Yeah. Even though you were part of the, one of the biggest, craziest murders ever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey, I mean, if you actually think about it, I mean, like they don't call it the Folger LaBianca murder. Murders. Folger, LaBianca, Tate. No, yeah. it's, it's the Tate murders. It's the Tate murders, yeah. And poor uh, Stephen, he's the lower echelon of the victims. Yep. It's like uh, it's like with OJ, you know? No one knows who Ron is. Poor guy just lost in history. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody deserves to die, especially as brutally as they did. But Stephen had absolutely zero to do with any of this. He was just happened to be there. Yeah. 18-year-old kid, you know what I mean? Imagine, though, 18, right? You get called to watch, like, house it, basically. And you go, you show up, and you're like, oh, who's? I wonder who's in the main house. And it's fucking Sharon Tate, yeah. Abigail Forward. Like, you're like, what? That would be the equivalent of seeing Margot being like, that's Margot Robbie at this point in yeah, time, yeah, yeah, 18 yeah. years old, right. just hanging out. I'd be they, like that dude from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> the jiggler. Handle him, I'd be Dave the jiggler would be coming up. Anybody what? home? Anybody in here? What is that guy doing at the front door? <laughs> That's hilarious. Funny enough, tie-in, too. Margot played Sharon Tate in the that, true. In, uh, true. Quentin Tarantino's movie. That's right. All right, so now we will go into the brutal murders of each of these individuals in Chapter 2. Chapter 2. 
Tex Watson knew the location they were going very well. When he was friends with Dennis Wilson, the two would party there often, as Wilson, an occupant of the home at the time, Terry Melcher, were close friends. Charlie had gone there himself a few times, trying to follow up on Melcher's promise to record his music. The last time he went there, he met a beautiful young blonde who had told him that Melcher had moved to Malibu. Who lived there now wasn't the issue. It was the residence itself that stood as a symbol of how the establishment was destined to keep Charlie and his family down. Prior to heading out to start their mission and kick off Helter Skelter, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian spent some time dropping acid, taking hits of speed, and listening to music. When it was time to leave, Tex and the girls grabbed a 22 caliber Buckline Special Revolver and three buck knives. Tex, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Kasabian then hopped into a 1959 Ford they borrowed from one of the ranch hands at Spawn Ranch, telling them they were going to a concert in the city. Manson stopped the crew as they began to drive away. He reiterated how important it was to send the message. Manson told Tex and the girls, totally destroy everyone in that house, as gruesome as you can. Make it real nice, just as bad as you've ever seen. Oh, and get all their money. Manson also instructed them to write the words Helter Skelter and rise in the victim's blood. Linda Kasabian drove the crew to 10050 Cielo Drive. She parked on the side of the road, and Tex walked up an embankment and climbed a pole to cut the telephone line. Tex, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel climbed the security fence as Kasabian stayed with the car and acted as a lookout. As the three made their way up the driveway, headlights approached. The two women made their way for the bushes as Tex made his way to the coming vehicle. He stood in the middle of the driveway and pointed the gun at the driver until the vehicle stopped. He approached the driver's side door and opened it. A frightened Stephen Parent shouted, Please don't hurt me. I won't say anything. Stephen raised his arms as Tex slashed him with a knife across the wrist, breaking Stephen's wristwatch. Tex then drew the twenty-two revolver and fired four times, killing Stephen Parent instantly. With the dogs now barking, Tex and the girls made their way further up the driveway. There was no movement in the house as they approached. Tex cut the screen on a window and made his way inside, opening the front door for Atkins and Krenwinkel. Wojtek Frykowski, sleeping on the couch, was the first to be found. Watson struck Frykowski over the head with a pistol, breaking the grip. Disoriented, Frykowski asked who they were, and Watson responded, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Frykowski was then tied up. Atkins and Krenwinkel made their way to the bedrooms where they passed by the open door of Abigail Folger, who smiled at them and said hello as they passed, thinking they were friends of Sharon Tate's. Abigail was then grabbed and led to Sharon Tate's room, where Sharon and Jay Sebring were laying on the bed, talking. The three were led to the living room along with Frykowski and tied up. A rope was thrown over a beam in the house, and Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring were restrained by their necks on either side of the rope. The three began beating and stabbing the victims. A scuffle broke out between Tex and Sebring, and Tex shot him in the face. Abigail Folger and Voltek Frykowski, severely wounded, 
managed to undo their restraints and made a run for it. Krenwinkel chased after Abigail. Frankowski made his way out the front door, but fell into the bushes. Susan Atkins came outside, but forgot her knife and went back inside the house. Frankowski managed to get up and take a few steps, but was shot twice by Tex. He was stabbed 51 times throughout his body, including his face and head, and bludgeoned more than a dozen times with the butt end of a pistol. Abigail made her way through the house and out a back bedroom door, where she was chased down by Krenwinkel. Abigail, crying out for her mother, received a gaping slash across her face and was stabbed 28 times. Her white nightgown turned crimson red. As she was being stabbed, she told Krenwinkel, I give up. You got me. I'm already dead. Krenwinkel and Watson made their way back into the house. As Susan Atkins was stabbing the pregnant Tate, Sharon begged for the life of her unborn son, who was to be named Paul Richard Polanski. She pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to see her son born. Susan Atkins responded, Woman, I have no mercy for you or for your baby, before finally killing her and the baby in her womb. Jay Sebring, in addition to being shot in the face, received seven stab wounds. Sharon Tate received 16 stab wounds to her back and chest. Atkins dipped a rag in Tate's blood and scrawled the word pig on the front door. They fled the scene as fast as they could. They didn't realize until they had driven away from the scene that they had forgotten to take the money as Charlie had requested. $600 to be exact. They stopped at a house down the road and used a garden hose to wash off until they were disrupted by the owners. They disposed of their clothes and incriminating evidence, including the broken pistol, out of the window of the vehicle as they drove back to Spawn Ranch. When they arrived, Manson and another member of the family were dancing naked. Manson saw the crew, and he asked, What are you doing back so early? The next morning, the family was waiting on reports of the murders, hoping it would kickstart Helter Skelter. Although the murders were brutal, there was no report of an uprising. Charlie was furious. The crew he sent out the night before were supposed to be his best, but they fucked it all up. They were sloppy and chaotic. There were screams, gunshots, dogs barking, and they threw all of their evidence out of the car window along the side of the road. He told his people that they would need to go out again tonight, and this time, he would be there to ensure everything would go according to his plan. You know, with, with the whole story, you, you touch on probably the biggest like indicator of the times. Yeah. And what was going how the world view, like was viewed during the late 60s to smile at Atkins and uh Krenwinkel oh well, Folger as they walk by the bedroom right. like Waving, hi hi yeah. hi how you doing yeah. like it just goes to show how like everybody was allowed to be there and be cool right. like, everything was open everything door, was open welcome. door policy yeah I don't care who you are nowadays even if yeah. you were staying at like you weren't that wasn't your home and you're just staying there you're like oh it must be Sharon's friend like it must, it must be Dave's friend I'd still be like yo who the fuck is who this the Dave fuck just what she's like hi it just it just goes to it shows so much of how the world was back then right yeah now, they, they talk about, particularly with, with Susan Atkins, 
how the case broke open. You know, she was in prison and she was like bragging, you know, oh, I, you know, I killed a pregnant woman, and, you know, I stabbed her baby and everything like that, and I didn't care. I felt nothing. All this other kind of stuff. It goes down in history as her being like the active killer of Sharon T. Mm-hmm. But both Tex Watson and I believe Patricia Krenwinkel both state that uh, Susan Atkins didn't. Yeah. It was Tex who killed Sharon T. Yeah, Susan was a very bubbly. Yeah, I mean, she was crazy. She was, she had, she was crazy. I mean, she, yeah, she they did. all are crazy. Right, but you know, she she had her a few screws loose. Yeah, Krenwinkel was more of a soldier for right Manson than than yeah. Atkins was. And you know, as we as we talked, I, I believe in the last episode, like Susan Atkins, like she was kind of she, she was in the inner circle, but she was on a very short leash with Manson. You know, like they they kicked her out, brought her back in. You know, so but it just seems like. Uh, it's it's interesting that she would brag about it, even though right. multiple people said no. She she freaked out that night. She had no clue what she was doing. She almost butched, she botched the whole thing. Like they like that the the people that were actually there, the eyewitness like the eyewitness people. It's interesting that I, maybe it's a defense mechanism in maybe. jail maybe. to show you that you're crazy yeah. and stuff like that. I, I don't know because why would you want to brag about that? At that point, most people would be go the other way and say yeah. I had nothing to do I with had this. Nothing to do with this shit. They're screaming, "I'm I'm a free man!" Or from the yeah. jail cell, yeah. and, <laughs> like Manson did for God knows how many years. Um, yeah, because you know, as we talked about in the story, uh, when Frakowski came out of the house, you know, he had already been stabbed multiple times, and you know, he fell into the bushes, and Susan Atkins came running out the door. And she didn't even have a knife. So <laughs> she's like, woo. Uh, so she went ran back in the house, and it was Tex who came out and shot and beat and stabbed Frankowski. Now, there's another one, you know, we talk about in the story, and like we said, you know, this is going by the prosecu- prosecution's theory, is that Linda Kasabian, she was uh, the lookout. She was stayed with the car or whatever. But um, after after the you know, Stephen Parent was shot, and all this stuff started happening. Like, Kasabian actually ran up the driveway and allegedly tried to stop what was happening. Because even though Tex and Krenwinkel and them, they knew what was what was happening, uh, I don't think Linda Kasabian was in on that plan. There's another theory that we will discuss in the next episode that I think Linda Kasabian thought they were what they were there for. And it didn't involve murder. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she went up there, she actually saw Susan Atkins come out and run back in the house. She saw Tex come out and, and do what he did to Frakowski. Uh, she saw Abigail Folger run across the lawn and Krenwinkel, you know, doing what she did to him. And, I mean, the, the entire scene, it was just so freaking brutal. It was chaotic. Yeah, it was just, mayhem. It was it was everything. It was so botched from the beginning. And yeah. the fact that they got away with, like, from shooting someone at the... Shooting someone before you even enter the house outside right. is such a wild way to start a murder. Yeah. And then and then I just mean, how it, frantic, it was, chaotic. 50 set, what, uh, 51 times? Yeah, oh, Frykowski. Yeah. Frykowski was stabbed? Yeah. Do you know did how you, brutal did, that is? Did you see the autopsy photos? Well, I, we both saw the autopsy photos. Yeah. And I, if you've got a weak stomach, don't look those up. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, he had, like... He, yeah. Because, you know, obviously they're cleaned up and, you know... Yeah, they're whatever, washed. And the autopsy... And you can actually see the gaping the holes. gaping and, holes in their body. And Frykowski had them, like, numerous, like, in his skull. Like, he was stabbed in his head, his face, his, like, his entire body. And Abigail Folger, she had this, like, enormous, like, gaping, like, wound going down the side of her face along her cheek. Squealer scar, basically. Yeah. And it's just awful. Texas is an interesting 
such an interesting character in this story too because like to be belittled that much by Charlie like he, he came from an amazing family like he worked at his dad's dad worked at his dad's general yeah. store star, store in Texas like and then to just put up with Charlie's shit and he would Charlie would belittle the fuck out of him yeah. belittle the fuck out of him and then to, to get to the point where he just wanted to prove something to Charlie blow it blows my mind yeah it's, it's the whole the whole fucking thing is just fucking weird I mean, to top it all off, Sharon sitting there with a rope tied around her neck. Which the other end is tied to Sebring, who's now dead on the floor. Yep. There's blood everywhere. And you are pleading for your life Any with babies. your with your baby. Like, I, that is probably, like, I'm going to get goosebumps just thinking about how terrifying her last moments alive must have been. And there's a cult around you. Right. Ready to talk about we're doing the devil's work and this and that. That's yeah. got to be terrible. I, I can't I mean, even the, imagine. The most heartbreaking thing is is that she just she begged and pleaded to just let her live long enough to see her baby born. Yeah, that's all she wanted. She's like, she said, "You can kill me. You can come back and you can kill me after. Just let my baby be born." And they're basically like, "Fuck you." You know, Charlie is such a mythical creature that after you just sent your followers to commit a horrendous act, they come back and you're naked dancing. Dancing, yeah. Like... All five foot, nothing of them. Yeah. It's such a crazy ending to that. Wait, you guys are back already? Yeah, what are you doing? Back so soon? It's crazy. Tell me all about it. Here, let's sit down in a little powwow and smoke some weed. Now, I wonder wonder if he was, like, still naked when he started berating them about... You fucked it. Well, no, because he was. They were waiting. They waited for the next day oh, yeah. to, you know, to see That's if the, right. the helter skelter was going to start. That's right. And I, at this point, as a follower, you were you were being told for the last two years that this is going to happen. I'm going to save you. I'm going to do this. We're going to save. We're, I'm going to save you all, and this and that. You would think they would question and be like, "Hey, why are we starting this?" Like right. it was such a blind following i, I don't know well, there was I, I read somewhere when i was researching this that like when when they sat down for their nightly daily whatever uh, lsd fucking trips like charles manson would feed each, he, each he person was, he was the supplier he was a supplier he would actually put you know the lsd or the speed or whatever in their mouths so it makes you wonder like how much did he take oh you think he was uh because you know, it kind of reminds me of that party that we had where oh you little bastard where I was I was the designated bartender for the evening and you know I was like hey everybody let's line up and do shots and I'd pour shots for everybody and I'd put water in my shot <laughs> you an asshole I remember dude somebody almost died that night I know. <laughs> uh, uh, someone did a belly shot off me I think it was you no it wasn't me no maybe it was definitely it, was- no, <laughs> it wasn't a female I know you that you remembered if it was me <laughs> no. no so you're saying he was doing the yeah. The, the shot over the shoulder. Yep. yep. Like, all right, everybody. Uh, see, I don't, as much as, you know, from personal accounts of people that grew up with him, they all said he was dumb as shit in school. He was dumb as rocks. But he could, when he was interested in something, with something, classic signs of ADD, yeah. ADHD, he would he would have a photographic memory for things. Bible verses, like the Bible he knew from front to back. Yeah. Almost, and could bring out a Bible quote. On the drop of a dime, if you had any like thing that was going on in the search situation, he had a quote for it from the Bible. Yeah. And then all these people, if you think about it, followers, none of them were 
super religious at the joining of the cult. They be, kind of became because of Charlie's word and all that stuff. They're all but kind of they, searching for something. They were searching for something because they, they they didn't they would they grew up in broken homes, runaways, this and that. So like, imagine you're you're you're. I mean, if, if nobody if people are listening, they've never done acid before. It's fucking crazy. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> I'm not promoting it, by the way. I'm just yeah. saying. So you're all you're tripping balls. So you heard. So you've heard. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. So I've heard. Yeah. You're tripping balls, and then you have this guy just reciting Bible quotes to you, and you, it's almost now at this point you're believing that it's his word, and he's coming up with these things. These right. were written for thousands. Oh, years. and they're probably all sitting there tripping and seeing yeah, him, like, like this bright light yeah, behind like, them, and he's floating, telling them everything they want to, everything they want to hear, everything they want to do. It, it's it. I so to answer your question, I 100 percent believe that Charlie could be on heavy doses of LSD and still recite, you know, Bible scripture in his word and this and that. I think I think he could. I think he could. All right. I mean, I got... And also, he was believing his own shit, too, which means he was probably... It was deep. It was buried deep in that brain. And it started to spiral, too, the more he took. Yeah. All right. So next up, we'll go into Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. We'll discuss a little little bit about them and leading into uh, their murders here in Chapter 3. Lino and Rosemary LaBianca appeared to have an ideal life. Both middle-aged and successful, as Lino owned a wholesale grocery supply company and Rosemary owned two dress shops. They both had children from previous marriages, blending Lino and his three children with Rosemary and her two children. Rosemary's daughter, Susan, had grown to despise her mother and she hated Lino, but the other children seemed to get along fine and thrived in this new blended family with Rosemary's son being the only one to actually live with them full-time. Lino and Rosemary purchased a home at 3301 Waverly Drive from his mother in late 1968 and almost immediately began having problems. Rosemary's relationship with her daughter, Susan, already soured, became more of an issue when she began dating a 25-year-old who they believed was a drug dealer. Susan's boyfriend was also believed to be in a motorcycle club, the two would disappear to a compound in the desert, home to a hippie commune that was often referred to as a family. It was in early 1969 that Lino and Rosemary began noticing things were starting to be a bit different around their home. At first, it was small things. Items moved out of place inside their home. The two had become millionaires through their businesses and smart investments, and even though Lino had a bit of a gambling problem, they were still able to indulge. Inside the home was cash, jewelry, a valuable coin collection, guns, yet nothing was ever stolen that they could tell. It started to become a real issue when Lino and Rosemary would come home to find their dogs wandering outside, knowing full well that they had been inside the home when they left. Rosemary would call the police time and time again, but nothing could ever be done because they could never report anything stolen. Rosemary approached her daughter and her boyfriend about it, but both had denied ever breaking into the home. Lino and Rosemary were exhausted from dealing with these break-ins, and both were at their wit's end. By July of 1969, Lino wanted to move out, telling his mother, we can't sleep in that house anymore. In the morning of August 9th, the couple left for Lake Isabella, about a three-hour drive away, where Rosemary's children, Susan and Frank, had been staying with family friends. Lino had lent their friends his boat earlier in the week so they could go water skiing. 
they enjoyed a wonderful day on the lake with family and friends. Before they left, Susan had implied that Frank should stay another night with his friends since they were having such a great time. Both Lino and Rosemary agreed. At 9 p.m., Lino, Rosemary, and Susan left the lake for a long trip back to Los Feliz Hills. The couple dropped Susan off at her apartment on Greenwood Place, about two miles away from their home on Waverly Drive. They stopped at her newsstand to pick up a copy of the LA Times in a racing forum. The couple knew the gentleman at the stand very well, so they chatted for a few minutes, with Rosemary expressing her concern over the murder the night before, roughly 11 miles away on Cielo Drive. Little did Rosemary realize those 11 miles would be a lot closer than she would have imagined. Lino and Rosemary left the newsstand and arrived home minutes later. Lino left his vehicle on the street because he didn't feel like backing his boat up the long driveway at 1 o'clock in the morning. With the couple now inside the home, Rosemary retired to her bedroom while Lino laid on the couch to read the newspaper. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Lino LaBianca, he was born. Pasqualino Antonio LaBianca in Los Angeles, California in August 6, 1925. Now in high school, Lino was an exceptional student. Uh, where he actually skipped a grade. Lino was described as quiet, shy, and equipped with a subtle humor. And he had a great capacity for getting himself innocently into all kinds of trouble. In 1940, Lino's father bought the house on Waverly Drive in the Los Feliz district of Los Angeles. Uh, He served in World War II, being stationed in England, France, Holland, and Germany. He left the army with the rank of Sergeant First Class. In 1959, after his first marriage, Lino met Rosemary Struthers. The two fell in love and were married a year later in uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> Vegas wedding, baby. Vegas, baby. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Now, the two bought a house in Los Feliz that was previously owned by Walt Disney. Imagine owning Disney's old home. I know. Now, it says here that the house needed a lot of work. And turned out to be more trouble than it was worth. Ah, oh, no shot. I'm, like, keep, I'm keeping it. I would I'm keeping it. Just yeah. to say, I'm in. I live in Walt Disney's house. Right. Shingles falling off the. Don't roof. even care. Whatever. We'll, we'll slowly. We'll we'll go over there, nail a board, and then leave. Come back the next day, nail a board, and leave. Yeah. Anybody want to see Disney's old house? Yeah. Watch the hole in the floor. Watch out. Now, in 1968, Lino sold the uh, Disney house and bought the Waverly Waverly Drive house from his mother. Uh, Rosemary LaBianca, she was born in Mexico on December 15th, 1929. Uh, her parents were reported to be Americans, and either they abandoned her or or they died prematurely. Nobody really knows. But ultimately, she found her way into Arizona, where she was in an orphanage until the age of 12, when a California family by the name of Harmon adopted her. Rosemary got along well with Lino's children. Her children, Susan and Frank, were about the same age as Lino's daughter, Corey, and his son, Anthony. Rosemary's sophisticated style and fashion sense was a big hit with Lino's daughter, Corey. Now, Rosemary converted an old 1957 Ford into a mobile dress shop under the name Boutique Carriage. 
and it was a huge success. Uh, Rosemary also opened a dress shop uh, within the Gateway Shopping Plaza, which I believe Lena owned. And while her business flourished, uh, Rosemary made some smart investments in stocks and commodities, and suddenly she was a millionaire. Rags to riches, baby. Rags to riches. She was living in that foster home and realized she knew she knew exactly what to do to survive. Right. Yeah. Get yourself, find yourself a nice married man, or a rich man. That's it. And then we'll just shoot up to the moon, baby. <laughs> now, I don't typically like to dig up the dirt on on the victims. Hey, like hey, you guys, you, you know, but, we're completely transparent here on the number one true crime yeah. podcast in the world. Now, well, I guess anybody with a little bit of digging on the internet can find that uh, Lino was actually embezzling money from his company and his uh, partners, which are actually his brother-in-laws, basically told him that he had to sell his shares in the business in order to pay back the money that he was taking. Embezzling. Right. So with all that being said, uh, we'll go right into their horrific murders here in Chapter 4. Charlie and his crew of Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian were now joined by Leslie Van Howen and Steve Clem Grogan. They were cruising around Los Angeles what seemed like hours. Charlie thought of killing a priest standing outside of a church. Then he thought of shooting the man next to them at the stoplight, but the light turned green and the man had sped off. Charlie instructed Linda to pull off the side of the road, and he and Tex got out. The two disappeared for a short time, and when they returned, Charlie told Linda to drive to Harold True's place and gave the address of 3267 Waverly Drive. When they arrived, Linda Kasabian pulled in front of the house next door and slowly crept toward the address given. It was just after 1 a.m. Charlie got out of the car and ran up the driveway of Harold True's place, which was now vacant. A few minutes later, he came back, grabbed Tex Watson, and the two made their way back up the driveway. The others in the car got out and lit up cigarettes. Charlie and Tex jumped a fence from 3267 Waverly Drive to the house next door. They peered through a window into a lit living room that showed a man sleeping on the couch with a newspaper draped over his lap. They immediately walked to a side door, which happened to be unlocked. When they entered, they were met by the LaBianca's dogs. They didn't bark. In fact, it appeared as if the dogs knew them, as one of the dogs nudged Tex's hand to pet him. Manson quietly approached Lino and nudged him a few times. Startled, Lino jumped up and asked what the men were doing there. Manson said, Hey man, we're just here to rob you. No one will get hurt. Charlie gave Tex a leather strap, and he tied up Lino's hands and feet. They then went to the bedroom and brought Rosemary to the living room and sat her next to Lino. Tex then restrained Rosemary. He went rummaging through the house, searching through their wallets, and looking for other areas for money. Charlie then instructed Tex to bring Rosemary back to the bedroom. Tex laid her on the bed and placed a pillowcase over her head and wrapped a lamp cord around her mouth. When Tex returned to the living room, Charlie told him he was stepping out and sending the girls in. 
he pulled Tex close and whispered, Make sure it's not messy like last night, and don't let them know you're going to kill them. Charlie returned to the car, this time coming down the LaBianca's driveway. He instructed Patricia Krenwinkle and Leslie Van Howen to join Tex inside the house and do whatever he says. While waiting for the girls, Tex grabbed another pillowcase and put it over Lino's head, and as with Rosemary, wrapped a lamp cord around his mouth. Krenwinkle and Van Houten went into the home, were given knives from the kitchen, and were instructed to go into the bedroom with Rosemary. Soon, they could hear the screams. Tex repeatedly stabbed Lino in the neck and chest with a bayonet, slicing his carotid artery. Rosemary screamed, What are you doing to my husband? Rosemary began to struggle against the two women and fell off the bed. Leslie held Rosemary down as Patricia plunged her knife deep into Rosemary's flesh time and time again. Clinging to life, Lino begged Tex to stop stabbing, which he did, and then went running into the bedroom and began stabbing Rosemary. He handed Leslie the knife and told her, Charlie says we all need to get our hands dirty. Leslie Van Howen stabbed Rosemary in the back about 16 times, at least 12 of which were considered to be post-mortem. Krenwinkel made her way into the living room and yelled, He's still alive. Tex Dan ran back into the living room, drove a carving fork into his stomach, plunging it so deep it pierced Lino's colon. Krenwinkel then carved the word war into Lino's stomach with a knife and plunged it into his neck. In all, Lino was stabbed 12 times, mostly in the neck and chest, and had 14 additional wounds from the carving fork. Rosemary was stabbed 41 times, mostly in the back and buttocks. Grenwinkle dabbed a rag into Lino's blood and wrote the words, Rise, Death to Pigs, and the misspelled Helter Skelter. The murders were over within minutes. The threesome felt so confident that they didn't alarm the neighbors, They each showered and made themselves a snack. Sandwiches with a glass of milk. The dogs were fed by the girls, and they never made a sound. Charlie and the others had left the scene as soon as Krenwinkel and Van Howard went into the house. The three would have to walk back to Spawn Ranch, disposing of their clothes and the bayonet into nearby Rowena Reservoir along the way. So I just want to take a quick jump into a conspiracy theory about Rosemary's daughter, Susan, that is separate from the helter-skelter theory. Now, we discussed how Susan and Rosemary were at odds with each other and how she felt disdain for her mother, and she hated Lino for God knows what, even though Lino included her in his life insurance policy. Like, her and uh, her uh, Rosemary's son, Frank, were both to receive $20,000 from his life insurance, which $20,000 in 1969... It's a lot of money. It's a lot of fucking money. Now, there's a few things that stand out. And I'm just going to say this. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying that there's a lot of coincidences that kind of don't make sense, okay? Now, Susan's boyfriend, we discussed, was said to have belonged to a motorcycle club that was known to hang out at a hippie commune in the desert. 
Interesting. We know exactly where he was. Right. And now the family, as we discussed, had connections with the Straight Satans uh, and also other motorcycle clubs. So uh, Manson and the family used to party next door at Harold True's place in 1968. Now, it's been speculated that the LaBianca home was vacant during this time, but numerous people have said that the home was never vacant. It's just that Lino and Rosemary didn't live there yet. Uh, a couple had been reported to stay there from time to time before they moved in. Guess who they were? Rose, Rosemary's daughter, Susan, and her boyfriend. Manson, they always used to party there. They had their parties and they were right next door. Now, Tex Watson, we talked about in the first story, first part, that he actually left the family for a short period of time. Yes, he got busy. Yes, and he lived on Greenwood Place Okay, during 1968. Then he came back. Guess where Susan lives? Where, guess where her apartment was? Right next door. She lived less than a block from Te- Tex Watson during 1968. Now, in the story, Charles Manson, you know, he left the vehicle for a short time, and when he returned, he told Linda Kasabian to drive the Waverly Drive. Now, when he was gone, did he make a phone call? Like, who did he talk to? And why did he immediately give Linda the address as soon as he re-entered the car? Yeah. Because... Like, everybody who was there, Tex, like, everybody in the car, like, they were just cruising at first, you know, looking, oh, who, who can we, you know, there's a priest, let's yeah, shoot him. Yeah, the poor guy who was lucky enough to go, get the green get, light get the green at the fucking, yeah. yeah. You know, so then they pull over, Manson leaves, gets him in the car, boom, we're going here, okay? So they all go there. Now, Manson knew what time to go to the house, which was within 30 minutes of Lino and Rosemary arriving home. Uh, Manson knew exactly which door to enter into the house. Uh, the dogs, they were known to ag- aggressively bark at strangers. And it's like they knew them. They never made a sound when Manson and Tex entered. Uh, with the Tate murders, it was fast, chaotic mayhem, you know, a bunch of dysfunction everywhere. With the LaBiancas, it was calculated, and they spent enough time in the house to shower, eat, feed the dogs. Why? Did they know that nobody would be coming? Very interesting. They had free reign of the house. Now, Catherine Cher, who was a member of the family, uh, she was in the softcore porn with Bobby Beausoleil. Uh, she admitted in the 1980s that they did the creepy crawly mission to that home a week prior to the murders. Now, Susan, her boyfriend, and Rosemary's son, Frank, uh, they pulled up in a cargo truck and emptied the house out soon after the murders, like within days. And uh, uh, Susan placed threatening phone calls to Lino's children not to intervene. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Now, here's something that scratches my head, and I'm like, what? Now, Tex Watson, he's in jail. He's been convicted of the Tate LaBianca murders. He's yep. in there for years. Now, we're talking 25-plus years. Tex Watson had a consistent visitor in prison. Can you guess who the visitor was? Susan. Susan. Yep. Why would you visit the man who the man who murdered, murdered your, your mother? mother? All right, now now there's people that will say, "Oh, it's forgiveness and this and that," and like, no. Now, like no. I said, I'm not saying that Susan knowingly had her mother killed, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I'm just wondering how many coincidences need to happen before it becomes an actuality. It's interesting how that theory didn't go mainstream, or, right? Or the. the investigators didn't you know there's a lot of shroudedness around this too yeah too like well there i mean at the time i mean right off the bat people were saying drugs right then 
I don't know how this whole helter skelter theory came about, but that's prosecutor was like, we're going with this. But there, there is one thing about about the murder scene that I want to point out, and I'm not saying that any people who committed these acts are less guilty than the others. But with uh, Leslie Van Houten, you know, she wasn't, you know, she restrained Rosemary. She did all this other kind of stuff. But when it came to it, you know, Tex came in and was stabbing her and Patricia stabbed her. And Tex, like, handed her the knife and said, Charlie said everybody needs to get their hands dirty. Poor Lulu. Yeah. So Poor Lulu. uh, So it says that the majority, the vast majority, maybe all of her stabs were post-mortem. So she was just like, okay, I'll... I'm yeah, it. I'm doing it. Just, just I'm yeah. doing it. Don't tell Charlie. Kind of thing. So it, it just kind of has like, you know, his hold on the whole, even though she was reluctant to do it, like she did it because she didn't want to disappoint Charlie. Charles Manson. You know what I mean? Which is just fucking weird in, in itself. So there's a lot of questions with the LaBianca murders. Uh, are they all tied in? Yes. I mean, are there alternate theories to go along with it? Absolutely. Now... We'll go into how everything comes to an end in Chapter 5. Charlie watched Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Howen walk up the driveway, then turned to Linda Kasabian and told her to drive. He wanted to plant Rosemary's wallet in a black neighborhood, so it could be found and linked the LaBianca murders back to this community. He gave the wallet to Linda Kasabian and told her to remove the money and wipe it down to remove prints. Charlie at first wanted Linda to throw it out the window, but changed his mind. They then drove to the Silmar Standard Station and told Linda to put the wallet on top of a toilet. She did as she was told, but rather than leaving the wallet on the top of the toilet, Linda placed the wallet inside the tank of the toilet, which went undiscovered for four months. While Linda was in the bathroom, Charlie walked next door to a Denny's restaurant and bought four milkshakes for himself, Linda Kasabian, Susan Atkins, and Clem Grogan. They strolled on a beach where Charlie and Linda walked ahead of Susan and Clem. Manson asked Linda about a man named Saladin Nader she had met hitchhiking and was alleged to have an interest in. What about the man you met? Isn't he a piggy? Charlie asked. Linda responded, Yes, he's an actor. Manson then gave Linda a pocket knife and told her that he wanted her to go to his apartment and slash his throat. Linda told Manson that she's not like him and couldn't kill anybody. He ignored her and the Ford drove to Nader's apartment complex. Manson and Linda exited the vehicle so she could show him where Nader lived. They then returned to the car where Manson gave Clem Grogan a gun and told him and Susan Atkins to follow Linda to the man's apartment. Again, Charlie would take the vehicle and the three would have to walk back to Spawn Ranch after the murder. However, a murder never happened. Linda Kasabian led Atkins and Grogan to another apartment, not that of Saladin Nader's. As Susan Atkins and Clem Grogan hid behind a corner, Linda knocked on the door. A strange voice came from behind the door, asking, Who is it? It's Linda, she replied. The door cracked open, and Linda said, Oh, excuse me, wrong door. Linda Kasabian escaped from the family two days later. 
For the rest of the family, the following days after the Tate-LaBianca murders remained quiet because although the murders were reported as horrific and ritualistic, neither the media nor the police connected the two crime scenes. Unknown to the family, police were in fact monitoring them, but not for the murders, for stealing car parts from local businesses and homes. At dawn, on August 16, 1969, police raided Spawn Ranch, catching the family by surprise, arresting Charles Manson and 26 other members of the family, including Lynette Fromm, Susan Atkins, and Ruth Ann Morehouse, for grand theft auto, burglary, and assault with a deadly weapon as one of the members reached for an officer's gun. Fortunately for the family, the search warrant had the wrong date on it, so they were all set free. Paranoia was now setting in for Manson. He was becoming very skeptical of the people around him. One of the ranch hands, a man by the name of Donald Shorty Shea, had a long-standing feud with Charles Manson, often running to George Spahn, urging him to remove Manson and the family from the premises because they were always up to no good. Manson believed it was Shea who tipped off the police about their stolen auto parts operation. Around August 26, 1969, Manson and followers Clem Grogan, Bruce Davis, Tex Watson, Bill Vance, and 17-year-old Larry Bailey told Shorty to take a ride with them. Varying accounts detail what happened next, from being dismembered to burned alive. Clem Grogan admits that the crew of men, led by Tex Watson, each took part in the stabbing and murder of Shorty Shea, with the exception of Larry Bailey, who was too scared to participate and was excused from the scene of the murder. Shorty had been missing for just short of a decade until Clem Grogan drew a map in 1977 of where they could find his body. Manson needed to get the family away from Spawn Ranch now that he was feeling the pressure from authorities. He and the family packed up and moved to Barker Ranch, a dilapidated homestead isolated within Death Valley. They lived in a school bus and in the rundown home on the property. Here, Charlie told his followers was the perfect place for their hideout from Helter Skelter and instructed his people to start digging holes to find their kingdom, as explained in Revelations 9. They would never find this kingdom, as on October 10th and 12th of 1969, police, now armed with a proper warrant, conducted raids on Barker Ranch. Manson was missing in the initial raid, but was arrested on the 12th when he was found hiding in a bathroom cabinet. Still, authorities had no idea who committed the Tate-LaBianca murders at the time of their arrests, but they soon would. In November of 1969, Susan Atkins, still being held from the raid in October, began boasting of her involvement in the gruesome murder of a pregnant woman and her friends earlier that summer. One of the women she told this to, Ronnie Howard, reported to a friend on the outside, who then went to the police. Susan Atkins was questioned, and promised not to be executed if she cooperated with a grand jury. She agreed and provided detailed accounts of the Tate murders. She implicated herself, Charles Manson, Charles Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian, stating that she had no remorse for the Tate killings. She also implicated Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Howen in the LaBianca murders. Warrants for the arrest of Krenwinkel, Watson, 
and Kasabian were issued. Manson, Atkins, and Van Houten were already in custody from the raid on Barker Ranch. Tex Watson had fled to his home state of Texas after the raid at Spawn Ranch, while Krenwinkel fled to Alabama after the raid at Barker Ranch. Linda Kasabian, who had escaped the family back in August, was now living in New Hampshire with her mother and daughter. Krenwinkel was arrested in Alabama on December 1, 1969, and extradited to California on February 19, 1970. Watson was arrested in Texas on November 30th, but because of political and legal red tape, was not extradited until nine months later, in August of 1970. And Kasabian willingly turned herself in on December 2nd, 1969, and didn't fight extradition. Linda wanted to talk to authorities, but was advised against it by her attorney in hopes of getting an immunity deal. After the grand jury indictments, Susan Atkins withdrew her cooperation, believed at the behest of Manson, and after their investigation showed that although Kasabian was present during the murders, her involvement wasn't as serious as the others. Prosecution gave her full immunity for her testimony. The trial began on January 24, 1970. And because the prosecution tried both murders together, Leslie Van Howen was included, even though she had nothing to do with the Tate murders. Kasabian spent weeks on the witness stand, detailing her brief life with the family, her relationship with Charles Manson, and the events that led up to, and including, the Tate-LaBianca murders. Because of her testimony, Manson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten all received guilty verdicts on January 25th. 1971, and sentenced to death. Because Tex Watson's extradition took so long, he stood trial on his own and was also convicted of the murders on October 12, 1971, and sentenced to death. In 1972, after the California Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional, the death sentences of all involved were commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Charles Manson spent decades claiming his innocence. He passed away on November 19, 2017. Susan Atkins passed away from brain cancer in prison on September 24, 2009. Patricia Krenwinkel was finally granted parole on May 26, 2022, but California Governor Gavin Newsom overturned the decision on October 14. Charles Tex Watson converted to Christianity in 1975. Through conjugal visits, he was able to marry and have four children. After conjugal visits were banned for inmates with life sentences in October of 1996, his wife divorced him. He remains incarcerated at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. Leslie Van Houten has been recommended for parole five times over the course of her incarceration, each time overruled by the sitting governor of California most recently on November 9th, 2021. Linda Kasabian turned to life as a recluse after the trial. She had remained hidden from society under an assumed name until 2008, when she did an interview for the program A Current Affair. In 1996, records show that she and her daughter were arrested for possession of rock cocaine and gun possession. Her daughter served time for that arrest. Linda Kasabian was last known to be living near poverty in the Tacoma, Washington area. 
At first, the Tate-LaBianca murders, they weren't connected, despite both locations having words written in blood, like pig or rise, death to pigs. Now, William Garretson, the 19-year-old caretaker at Cielo Drive, uh, he was held as a primary suspect in the Tate murders. Uh, during his interviews, uh, William gave nonsensical air, uh, answers to the questions being asked and even continued to do so during his polygraph. Yet, he passed. Uh, William was cleared and released of any wrongdoing after being uh, held for two days. Now, there were other theories the police were trying to hash out, mainly dealing with drugs, as during the investigation, police found that Paul Sebring uh, Wojtek Frykowski and Abigail Folger were heavily involved in the L.A. drug scene, but they eluded uh, arresting a main suspect in either case for months. Uh, meanwhile, the days that followed the Tate-LaBianca murders uh, found the family back at Spawn Ranch, still waiting for Helter Skelter to start, and nothing was happening. You know, regardless of how brutal the murder was, how tragic and horrific. Basically, the media is just like, oh, there's a brutal murder that happened here. Oh, and here's another one here. You know, it was like two separate things, and it didn't go according to Charlie's alleged plan. And like I said in the story, you know, even though they did the raid on Spawn Ranch for the auto parts and stolen cars and whatnot, they were farthest from pl the police's mind uh, as being the culprit. I know, isn't that crazy, though, that auto parts is what brought this whole thing down? That if... if Charlie didn't get so crazy and and piss people off like George Spawn's friends and this and stuff. Like they, this could have been completely could have got away sat free from this whole thing. How? What do you think Charlie was giving? George Spawn had to have been getting yeah. sex yeah, from yeah. these girls. Like there is no way that you just let these hippies hang out in your commune if you're not getting anywhere. And and like that's the thing when Shorty Shay like went to George Spawn. It was like, these guys are nothing but trouble. You yeah. know, you got to get them out of here, all this other kind of stuff. And George Spahn is like, I don't know. I, I'm getting everything I need right I'm now. I'm getting everything I need, you know? The dude's like 80 and Ugh. porking 19-year-olds, you know what I mean? Yeah. Of course he's loving life. Now, I, I want to, like, backtrack a little bit and talk about when they left the LaBianca's house. Uh, Charlie wanted to allegedly have... Uh, Linda Kasabian disposed of Rosemary's wallet in a black neighborhood, so they would use the credit cards and it would be traced back to, back to them. Now, the thing that doesn't make sense is that the gas station that they went to in the Denny's, it's basically like a middle of nowhere, off the exit gas station. There's no neighborhoods around. There's nothing around. So, I mean, if he was trying to actually start a race war... you But you... And there's so many of those situations where it's like, do you chalk it up to him just... They're just being lazy, high hippies? Or do you just, like... You know, like, oh, I want to go drop it off in a black neighborhood. Ah, oh, fuck it. Let's go get some milkshakes and I'll throw them in this garbage right here. Like, yeah. And first off, who gets... Who goes to Denny's after you just murdered four... Or two, two people in their own home? Jesus Christ, and have milkshakes. Yeah. So, but yeah, uh, you don't, you never know like the demeanor of a high person. Like, yeah. Uh, that, that, that's one thing that like stood out. It's like, which it couldn't be explained. You know, the, the prosecution ran, wrote, you know, ran with it, you know, saying this whole helter skelter thing. The easiest way for conviction. But yeah, but I mean, it, it didn't add up. No. You know, I don't know. That's just me. No, I'm, I'm with you. I agree. Yeah. Uh, it, it's also so interesting that, uh, Atkins is, the main reason why everybody went down and she 
was afraid and didn't even want to do these murders. Yeah. But she's the one who's saying, she like, can't oh, keep her mouth shut. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Charlie knew she was trouble way back I when. Know. That's why he kicked out of the inner circle. <laughs> I know. Oh, there's. And you would think, you would think that because Shorty Shay allegedly was believed to be a rat. So they, they took him out and murdered him. And here's Susan Atkins basically doing the same exact thing in prison. Yeah. Like, what did she think? I don't get what, what, what did she think would happen. But or maybe like you said, you know, maybe she was trying to get some prison clout or whatever. You know, who knows? Now the age old question yep. that everybody talks about. Go for it. Should he have been, been convicted for the mur- the actual murder charges? Because technically, Based Manson on, didn't kill anybody. Now, let me let me let me put it like this. I tell you, oh, this guy's pissing me off. He's a fucking asshole. All this other kind of shit. And you say, F- fucking kill him. It's conspiracy. To and I turn right. around and I'm like, okay, you know what? You're right. And I go and fucking kill this dude. Are you responsible? I, I'm with you. I'm I, I'm not saying that he's not guilty of the seven murder counts. I'm saying. Should it have been conspiracy to commit murder or uh, accomplice or, or some, another charge other than the actual murder charges? Uh, I believe in the conspiracy to commit because yeah. he conspired all of this. But it's interesting how he was charged for those murders and never killed anyone. Right. Well, you with can a be full murder with a full murder. Well, you. Charge. Well, here's the thing: is that if you kill somebody, and I know that you killed somebody, but I don't report it. I'm just as guilty as you are. Well, it would be conspiracy, though. It would be conspiracy to commit murder. No, it would be first degree murder. Like, if we're riding in a car, and uh, we pull off somewhere, and and you pulled out a gun and shot somebody, and then we took (laughs) off, and I never reported it, I'm just as guilty as you are in first degree murder. So, he was knowingly, he he knew about everything that happened, you know, and, I mean, that basically falls into the same same realm, I think. I mean... I I agree. I think he deserves... That he deserved to spend the rest of his life and die in jail. Oh, yeah, yeah but absolutely. It's just one of those things where we're like, hey, you know, every, that's the big thing that everybody talks about is, right. is well, you didn't you didn't kill anybody. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I didn't do it. Hey, you know, and, and, yeah. that, and that, that was his thing, like, all through those years. He's like, I don't have any responsibility over what they do. Yeah. You know, I just told them, hey, go be free and whatever. Yeah. You know, what they do after that, I mean, it ain't my fault. You know, it ain't my responsibility. They're adults. They know what they're doing. It's After I fed them fucking 18 tabs of LSD. <laughs> and told them my my gospel. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. We can't not talk about the fact that Tex, through conjugal visits, was able to marry and have four children. You, that is crazy. To go back on your conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah. Go what, ahead. Do you, what do you think? I, I already know what you're thinking. Do you think one of those visitors was Susan? Ooh. Ooh. I mean. Her num- his number one visited person in jail? Yeah, she kept going back for a reason. I, no, she, I, I no, love she, how you said too that he was converted to Christianity in 1975. Like that just forgave him from everything, right. all the horrible things. Well, that that's that's uh, Susan's thing because people actually like were raising eyebrows about that. Like, why are you visiting this man? And, and oh, because he converted to Christianity. Yeah, he's he, good now. He needs he needs yeah. my right. you know to, to live on. Bull my fucking shit. Yeah. You were fucking banging him and probably still banging him in prison. Allegedly, I'm uh, not saying that. Allegedly. <laughs> And then Lulu, you know, was recommended for parole five, five times, times from her therapist. There was there was an actual therapist that went there and inter- like those three, the three girls, mm-hmm. um, and you know, just trying to help them get over Manson's brainwashing. And it's right. crazy how they, like, the the therapist always says how like it's a wild how all the progress they make. The next day they'll come in, they'll shave their head, they'll say Charlie talked to them in their fucking right in their sleep, in their and dreams, just yeah. just crazy things like that. And how they just go right back into the brainwashing and how they would help each other not break through 
Right. Until they were separated. Yep. You know what I mean? Because they were they were in the, the same. The fact that they were all kept together during that whole time is crazy. Is nuts. Wouldn't you want to? I Susan mean, I, Atkins was I, allowed to meet with Charlie because they were all charged together, so they had a right to plan their own defense. Yep. All, all four of them, so they were allowed to meet with each other. Yep. And yeah. it, it's it's sad too because like I understand why people didn't want to put them in gen, gen pop because mm. of the high profile, the, right. you know what I mean. So I get why they stayed in isolation, but it was literally they were in the same prison block, right? <laughs> where yeah. they could talk to each other still. Exactly. So so you're trying to get through these fucking poor girls, yeah. and then you leave for the day, and then they just it go back revert. on their yeah. yeah. They just revert and say no, right. no. No, Lulu, you can't think like that. You know Charlie was a good person. Yeah. yeah. Now, here, here's another thing that I came across, and it has to do with Susan, and it has to do with Tex. Now, after the murder and the trial and all the convictions and everything like that, Susan had moved to the same neighborhood as Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah. Okay? Now, Susan's daughter was in the same class as Deborah Tate's daughter. And the two girls became super best friends. Wow. You know. I never heard that one. Yeah. And at one point, Deborah Tate's daughter went missing. And it just so happened to be around the time of one of uh, Tex Watson's parole hearings. Uh, Deborah Tate obviously is a staunch opponent of him getting parole. Yeah. And just so happens that her Deborah Tate's daughter goes missing around the time of the parole hearing. So she misses the parole hearing, but Susan makes it and speaks highly of Tex Watson and how he's converted to Christianity and how he's a great person and all this other kind of stuff. I think, th- <sighs> think there's a little bit more brainwashing going it's in. All, it's all... It's, it's, it I can't wait for the, the, you know, the next part we're going right. to talk about alternate theories, well, conspiracy theories, CIA mind control, the whole nine. So like we're, we're going to have I, fun with the next I one. I said this before... And like when you brought the, you brought this up a couple of times. Oh, we need to do Charles Manson. We need to do Charles Manson. And I'm just like, I don't know. The dude's a fucking nut job, you know. I'm not. I don't know. I'm not into the fucking crazies. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but digging into this, dude. My God, there's so much turns and twists, and and could be this and could be that, and yeah. everything is. I, at that time, it was such a prolific murder that the prosecution was looking for the easiest way to get conviction and get it over with. So they ran with the Helter Skelter idea. But I think there's 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 so much more involved in this whole story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk and, about, yeah, three, four, five different theories that we're going to talk about next episode. So unfortunately, we got to wrap this episode up. But, I mean, we could go on for hours and hours and hours just traveling down all these different paths. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It really is. So before we go, if you liked what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to become one of our amazing criminals on Patreon. Visit patreon.com backslash criminal AF, where you can donate as little as $2 a month to help the podcast. And if you wish to buy us a coffee, uh, the link to our support, socials and merchandise and more are in the episode description. Now, signing off from Studio Chloroform, keep your head on a swivel, and take care till next time. Now, now give me our theme music! music.